Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. Amen. Thank you for being here. Thank you, worship team. If y'all didn't know, that's a new sound effect called Tin Can. It's all the rage right now. I don't, I mean, I don't know where you've been, but they're doing it in all the big churches, so we thought we'd try it out. So, <laughs> but we'll, we, uh, we are going to get going here. It's so good to have you on Master Sunday. Uh, it's one of the holiest Sundays for sure because, because golf is just. Anybody watching the Masters other than me? I love the Masters. That's right. Okay. Um, I'm pulling for the, the underdog, the young guy, Will. Will Zalatoris. Not sure how you say his last name, but Will Z. We're going to go with that. But he's 24. He's from Wake Forest. So I'm pulling for him because, you know, Dustin Johnson's, he's like at the bottom. And Tiger Woods <laughs> wrecked his car in California. So I'm just going to go for the young guy, the underdog. But it's cool because, you know, they were interviewing him. This is his first major, like, PGA appearance. And he's like, why, why would I be nervous? Why would I be embarrassed? I've made it to this point. Like I've legitimately made it. Why would I be nervous or embarrassed of the big stage? Like I've, I've earned it. I'm here. But I'm sure in the back of his, ma- of his mind, he's feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Don't you think? Just a, just a wee bit, just a little bit. I mean, your first, can you imagine like your first time on the big stage, like the masters. Crazy. Um, Anybody here felt, whether it was moving to a new town or maybe you're doing something brand new, you're with a new person and you've kind of felt overwhelmed, you've kind of felt out of sorts, you kind of felt like this is not my scene. This is not where I belong. I felt that way. I feel that way in gyms. Gyms are not my thing. (laughs) I just like, there's nothing desirable about uh, being around a bunch of sweaty jack dudes and, and they're, they, they grunt and they moan and they stand in front of the mirror and flex. It's just weird. And then you have to like, they've all got headphones on, so you don't really know like, I need that piece of equipment. Like, and they're just standing there looking at the mirror and it's like, you got to interrupt their moaning. So you can, hey, can I, can I pick up that weight 15 times and put it down? Like, it's just, it's not my scene. I feel totally out of place in a gym. I, lo- I, I do enjoy working out, but I don't like gyms. Not my scene. I, I feel uncomfortable there. Just give me a trail in the woods and nature, and I'll, I'll run for miles. That's my thing. I'll do that. You can have your, your gyms. You can have your sweaty dudes, whatever. I'm not here for it. <laughs> but uh, we have, the point of it is, I'm sure you felt out of sorts at one time or another. How about this? Meeting your extended in-laws for the first time, like the family, right? Talk about feeling out of sorts. Maybe you moved to a new town. Maybe you attended a formal event and you didn't get the memo. You know what I mean? Everybody's dressed to the nines and then you come in like, where's all the t-shirt and jeans? (laughs) But... Peter 
what he's doing, what he's addressing with the rest of chapter two, that's right, we're in a sermon series entitled Cornerstone and we're finishing out chapter two today. And Peter's addressing his church, these Christian Jews who might be feeling a little out of sorts, a little out of place, a little bit like not my scene syndrome. Let's read about it and then we'll talk about how Peter instructs them and how, how they're to fit in in this world that they're not a part of. So 1 Peter chapter 2 in your Bible will stand. I'm going to read verse 13. You read along on the screen. Um, but here it is in 1 Peter chapter 2. You guys can stand. It says in verse 13, Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Looks like I'm going to have to... Oh, there we go. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God... One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Jesus, have your will in your way in this place today. We cast out the devil. We cast out any distraction, anything hindering your word from going forth to the hearts of those who hear. We give this entire service up to you. Help us to be changed. Help us to be edified and built up more into your image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. What Peter's doing is reminding us that like Jesus, the rejected cornerstone, we've also been cut out. We've been chiseled, we've been hewn out on purpose for a purpose to live as illuminating exiles in a land where we do not belong. It begs the question, what then is our context? What then is our relationship to this world we live in? Peter answers that question in the rest of chapter 2 by refuting three false theologies that were creeping into the church. He hands us three bricks, three new commandments to build up on our foundation and a sermon I've entitled, Three Laws for Living in the Land. Peter gives us three laws for living in the land, three bricks, if you will, to help us build on this foundation, this cornerstone of our faith. And here they are. Submit respectfully 
live freely, and suffer successfully. Three new laws for living in this foreign land. If we're called out and we're set apart, we're supposed to be different, and this world isn't our home, then how do we, how do we relate in this world? We're still here, aren't we? We're still, in, we're, still, we're still bound by this body, these flesh and bones. We're not to heaven yet. So how do we live in this land? Those three commandments. Submit respectfully, live freely, suffer successfully. What is Peter talking about? Let's start at the beginning in verses 13 through 15. Submit respectfully. Be subject, the Bible says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Submit respectfully to every human institution. Peter, backed up by Paul in Romans 13, backed up by Jesus in Matthew 25, says commandment one, brick one, is to put yourself under the authority of God-ordained government. Gross. I don't like it. It doesn't matter, it's the word of God. So it really doesn't matter whether you like it or not, it's the truth. But if there's anybody in this world, just selfishly speaking, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't, want, I don't plan on getting the vaccine. I'm going to swing my ARs around until they come and get them. But <laughs> all those things I can still do legally. But the Bible is saying, what is our context to this government? What is our context to authority in a world that we don't belong to? It's tough. You ever been um, the stepchild of your mom or dad's new husband or wife? It's like, do I really have to listen to them? They're not my dad. She's not my mom. And Peter's saying, in this world, you may feel like a stepchild. Because you've got a different heavenly father, and you're not up there. This world is not your home, but... Don't forget that I've ordained every human institution. I've given it. I've provided to it. So it's not that you have to submit because you are forced to. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. We are to submit to government. Proverbs says that God puts up one king and takes down another. So it doesn't really matter whether you care or do not care for the current president. It doesn't really matter whether you cared for or did not care for the previous president. Every king in Bible terms is put there by God. And so we're our place is to submit respectfully for the Lord's sake. Not because we want to or desire to or really feel like it today. It's for the Lord's sake. And it's not just national government. It talks about emperors and and governors. In other words, it carries on down 
the chain of command, the authority over us carries all the way down to local, local government, local institutions, police force, town of Irmo police force, Richland County, Lessington County. We are to drive the speed limit, obey the laws of the land. If you're anything like me, you're automatically coming up with a couple of rebuttals in your mind, right? Does this mean that I'm just supposed to blindly obey everything the government says? Does this mean she, you're back for more? Are, are you, Danny? She was at 9.30 and she said no. She said no at that point in the 9.30. So she's back for more. Interesting. Okay. So does this mean blind obedience? We just bow down to everything? No. It can't mean that. Why? Because we have to put scripture in the context of other scripture. So let me give you three examples where God honored people for standing against government. Daniel chapter three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded by the government to bow down to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they knew that they shouldn't do that. It would would have been a contradiction to their faith. And so they didn't bow. And what happens? They get thrown in the fiery furnace and the Lord walks with them and they were delivered, not even a singe of smoke, right? You know the story. So God honored them for disobeying government. Okay, turn three chapters to Daniel chapter six. The government put out a new law that they were not allowed to pray to anybody but King Darius. Did Daniel pray or not pray? He prayed. He disobeyed the government. And because of that, he was captured. He was thrown in the lion's den. And what happened? The Lord shut the mouths of the lions and he was delivered. So in these situations where we are called to step out against government, God shows up in our suffering. And he delivers in miraculous ways so that this world sees it and gives glory to God. What about Acts chapter 5? Peter is thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, the very man who wrote these words. He's thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. They let him out. They bring him to the court. They say, as long as you don't preach the gospel anymore, Benji, you're free to go. Peter stands up and says, we ought to obey God rather than man. So Peter the very man who disobeyed the government cannot mean blind obedience. So what does he mean when he says be subject then to every human institution? Here's what I think he means based upon the context of Scripture. Well, Peter and Paul, because Peter's not alone. Romans 13, Paul writes, it's almost word for word here, We'll read it in a second. Peter and Paul are both advocating. What they're advocating is to not live outside the law just because you're a sojourner or exile. If you're a believer, if we're a Christian, the way we reflect, the way we radiate, the way we put Jesus on display is by being subject, is by following the law, is by obeying the government. Let me show you. I know it's quiet. It was quiet in my office this week too because I didn't like it either. Trust me. 
It's the Word of God. But Romans chapter 13 says this. Paul backs up Peter. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Interestingly enough, in the previous chapter, this is also what Paul says. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? There you go. So it's not blind obedience, for we are to stand for our faith. When anything comes into opposition to that, whether it's national, state, local government, whatever, if it comes down to contradicting our faith, we are to stand for our faith. But anything beyond that, we are to do our best to live peacefully with all men. We are to do our best to live in submission and subjection to that. It's the word of God. So don't get mad at me and get mad at the Bible. Every authority is given by God. Peter, think about this. Peter wrote this in the days of the Roman Empire, which was not a democracy and was no special friend to Christians. Yet he still recognized the legitimate authority of the Roman government. So far, we can still be grateful that we live in a free land, a free country that does not come at us for our faith. Yet, Peter wrote these words of being subject to the government while Rome was searching out Christians to kill them. So put that in context of your little ideology of wanting to be a little rebel. Because I get it. We have this don't tread on me attitude, right? And I get it. Every fiber and bone in my body agrees with you, but the Bible says differently, be subject to your human institutions. One commentator puts like this, the meaning of St. Peter appears to be this, the Jews thought it unlawful to obey any ruler that was not of their own stock. The apostle tells them that they should obey their civil magistrate, let him be of what stock he may, whether Jew or Gentile, and let him exercise the government in whatsoever form. In other words, the Jews didn't think they had to obey the Romans because, well, they were Gentile and they were Jews. Peter says, be subject submit respectfully. Live in the world, live in the world, but not of it, but live in the world. I know it's tough. And you know what Peter's really refuting? He's refuting a certain theology that had begun to creep in called utopian theology. And it's pretty self-explanatory. It's the extreme view that sanctification is the complete separation, the complete removal of believers from this world. Are we to be set apart, yes or no? 
but we are to live in the world. So utopian theology is this cult-like, cluster-like, commune-like ideology that says, well, let's just get all of our stuff and segregate over here. We'll form a different government. We'll make new rules. And we don't have to listen. We don't obey. We don't bow down to any of the laws of the land. We'll drive whatever speed limit we want. Anybody remember 1993, the Branch Davidians? Remember that on the news? I was a little guy, but I still remember it a little bit. In Waco, Texas, there was this crazy guy named David Koresh. And he and his Branch Davidians, they secluded themselves in a compound in Waco, Texas, and they decided that they didn't have to obey the laws of the land of the United States of America. They stockpiled all these illegal weapons. They stockpiled a lot of drugs. They stockpiled a lot of stuff that were illegal. And they stopped obeying the government. Um, I don't think they, they paid taxes either, but that's a conversation for another day. And what had to happen was the FBI got involved, raided the compound. It got caught on fire and 76 of them were lost, lost their lives. And these were supposedly Christians, even though it was a cult. Peter is warning us against any false movement like that. We are never, Christians are never called to separate and segregate. I know. If there's anybody who, you know, this world is, is whatever. It's, this world is coming close to getting on my ever last loving nerve here. And if there's anybody who would, who would rather just uh, get us all together and we can all build homes on the same piece of property and just do life together and be happy hunky-dory, swinging our ARs around, it, it's, it's, it's me. I, I'm down for that lifestyle. But we're not called to, the Bible is saying any, the, the sure sign of any false movement is this cluster-like, commune-like, let's separate and be over here in this, in this monastery or, or this commune. Sure sign of a false movement. Isolation. If we're known as being rule breakers and rebels, we're giving ammunition to the enemy. And Peter says, if you want to shut up stupid people, then obey them. It says it right there. By doing good, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God said it. I didn't say it. But if you want to stand out in this world as a bright light, submit respectfully. So this first commandment, this first brick that we're to build with has to do with humility and respect. Humility and respect. And immediately in the next commandment, Peter gives us context. He says in verse 16, just in case you thought he was off his rocker, he says in verse 16, live as people who are free. Wait a minute, I thought you just told me to obey the government and now you're telling me to live freely. Which is it, Peter? It's both. You're free to live under the government. Before you were forced to, now I've called you out. I've made you a new people with new thinking, a new creation, a new identity. And now I'm asking you to live while you're in this world, while you're passing through this land, you're free to live in subjection to it. Live as people who are free. 
Not because you have to, but out of freedom. And we're not, it says, we're not to use this as a cover-up for evil or maliciousness. But we're free to show honor. Not blind obedience. We're free to show honor. Honor everyone. Love your brother. Free to love your brother. Free to fear God. Free to honor the king. There's a difference. See, we're, we're free to do these things. It comes out of a different heart, a different motive. What Peter's refuting in this couple of verses, verses 16 and 17, he's refuting this theology known as monergistic theology. Monergistic theology is the view that God's divine election is a free pass to live as you please. Peter says, no, 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 you are free. Don't misunderstand me. You're free to live righteously. You're free to live Loving God and loving others, anybody around here for any amount of time has known decided church as Chick-fil-A church, right? There's a lot of us who have lived, have lived, might as well, have worked at Chick-fil-A or still work at Chick-fil-A. And a part of, a piece of Chick-fil-A culture is, is in every orientation, every training video, treat everybody with honor, dignity, and respect. No matter their race, creed, color, socioeconomic background, anything, we treat every guest with honor, dignity, and respect. Peter's saying the same thing. See, that's not Chick-fil-A culture. That's Bible culture. That's Christian culture. We're to treat everyone. We're to honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Monergistic theology says, well, you're saved, so do what you want. At the end of the day, you're still going to heaven, so I guess you got a free pass to live as you please. I was just talking to somebody about this, but Peter's saying this is not an excuse for easy believism. Anybody heard that term before? Easy believism, it's just when, when other faith systems or other religions, when they look at us Christians and they say, what? All you have to do to get to heaven is have faith, just believe, and you just do what you want. They label us as easy believism. But Peter's saying, no, we're not free to live as we please. We're not free just to do what we want. We're free to live righteously. You want a little backup? Let's go to Romans again. Paul and Peter, again, they're on the same wavelength. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Hop over to verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body and to make you obey its passions. It says, verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. In other words, what Paul's saying, backed up by what Peter's saying, is when Christ saved you, he did set you free. And your security is eternally set in Jesus Christ in a home in heaven. Live like it. Not live as you please. Live like you're a child of the king. This commandment, this brick has to do with control and self-discipline. And then the third commandment, the third law for living in the land, which he covers in verses 18 
through 25 is suffer successfully. Peter's last commandment brings it close to home. Suffer successfully. You know what question Peter is answering? What about that nasty boss? That's what he's saying. You told me to obey, obey the government. You've told me to live freely, so I'm free to show honor, free to respect, free to love the brother, free to honor the king. But what about my nasty boss? What about this really bad relationship? What about this really bad toxic home environment? What about this really bad work environment? Peter says, you've been called to it. Peter says, it's, it's, it's your calling. Look at what he says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20 says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Not just to the good bosses, but to the bad ones too. Meaning, our lives as Christian exiles are often under the microscope of this world. And we've been called to suffer. Did you know that you were sanctified to suffer successfully? It's what we're called to. It's, it's what Jesus had in mind for us. That we're to follow in his steps to suffer successfully. We've been called to it. Now, Peter makes it very clear that suffering justly is called consequences. In other words, we live in a day and time where in this generation, if I can say this, in this generation, we have a lot of people who would like to slap the suffering label on their current environment. Whether it's a broken relationship or maybe they're, they're, they run out of money or their finances are shot or whatever it may be. They're like, oh man, I'm suffering. I'm just suffering. I'm going through a trial. This is a trial. I'm suffering. I'm sorry. I got no money. Uh, my girlfriend broke up with me. Uh, my job is on the line. And what Peter is saying is, don't call it suffering when it's just a symptom of your own sin. Peter's saying, don't blame it on the devil when it's just the deceitfulness of your own heart. You don't get that label. Peter's saying, if, <laughs> Peter's saying, if, if you're suffering because you deserve it, that's not suffering, that's called consequences. And we do live in a generation that, that thinks that they're suffering when they have no idea what suffering means. This is Peter writing in the age of the, of the Roman Empire, where Nero was literally using Christians' heads as torches in his gardens at night. Literally, human tiki torches. And Peter saying, hey, 21st century American church, you're not suffering. 
Don't call it suffering. You have no right to that label. What you're experiencing since you're out of money is the symptom of spending too much money. That's not suffering. It's just what you get when you run out of money. What you're experiencing with a broken relationship is, well, you're just an immature human and you need to grow up a little bit. That's not suffering. You're just suffering the consequences of your own actions. So we got to be careful. We, we run around and, and we and we tell our little girlfriends and whatever, like, I'm going through a really hard time, a little trial. I just need a lot of prayer. No, it's the consequences of your previous actions. Personal responsibility, learn about it. If you overspend, that's not a trial. Okay, I'm done. Should I move on? I'll move on. I'll move on. But Peter's saying, listen, What he's refuting here is confession theology. So we had utopian theology. He's uh, he's warning us against any cult-like institution or movement that would separate Christians out when we're supposed to live in the world, to be a light in the world. And then he's refuting this monergistic theology, which says, oh, I can live as I please. And now he's refuting this confession theology, which basically, if you boil it down, it means suffering equals sin. Confession theology means this. You were meant to possess what you have the faith to prophesy. In other words, no, you shouldn't be, if, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you're not, you're not supposed to suffer. No, you're supposed to have everything. You're supposed to have the best car. You're supposed to have the grandest house. You're supposed to have all the money. You're supposed to have all the wealth. And Peter's saying, no, we're actually sanctified to suffer. That's how we're put on display. When it comes down to making a stand for our faith, when we do have to stand against the government and we have the fiery furnace moments or maybe we have the Daniel in the lion's den moments, how we suffer when we're being pressure cooked reveals that we that God gets the glory. It reveals what kind of person we are. So suffer successfully. We refute, Peter refutes this idea that you're just meant to possess everything you have the faith to prophesy over your life, that, um, that Christians aren't supposed to suffer. No, we're actually called to suffer. Now, when we talk about suffering in the Christian faith, we have to be careful how we package it, because there's another faith, there's another religion system that really loves the idea of suffering, that really talks a lot about the concept of suffering. It's the Catholic faith. And while there are believing Catholics, what the Catholic Church endorses is this idea of suffering. They love to talk about suffering and bearing your cross and, and, and bearing the weight of Jesus, and they talk a lot about suffering, but it's in a totally different context of earning the favor or the grace of God. That's a lot different than what Christians are called to. We're sanctified to suffer. In other words, we're suffering in the footsteps of Jesus that because he saved us, because he's called us out, because he set us apart, we're going to suffer like he did. Remember John 15? 
If the world hates you, know this, it hated me before it hated you. So we're going to suffer. It's actually what we've been called to. We've been called to thrive in these pressure cook moments where, the, where, where our entire lives are under the microscope. And the world is searching for something to pin on us, right? And Peter says, if you want to shut this world up so they have nothing to say against you, submit respectfully, live freely, suffer successfully. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Now, don't label everything as suffering because it's not. But if you're truly suffering, if you're being persecuted wrongfully, Look at Jesus. And that's how he ends it. The example of Jesus. If anybody, if anybody, hear this, if anybody had the right to disobey government that was wrongly treating him, it was Jesus. He did no wrong, yet he didn't say a word in opposition. He was beaten, didn't do a thing about it. A crown of thorns was shoved into his head. He took it. They plucked out his beard, silent. He was crucified for sins he didn't commit, bore it. If anybody had the right to call down a legion of angels and wipe out the Roman government, wipe out the persecution, wipe out those Roman soldiers and the Jewish Pharisees too that were crucifying him, it was our Lord. But Jesus suffered successfully. He submitted respectfully first. He lived freely. He knew, he said in the garden, it's not my will, but yours, Lord. And then he suffered successfully. Committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued, catch this, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew that there was a bigger motive at play. There was a bigger story going on than what was happening to him in the moment. He knew that he could entrust his life, although beaten, smitten, crucified, all unjustly, he knew that he could leave it in the Father's hands and that one day, wrongs would be righted, that one day every knee would bow, that one day every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. How about you? Are you taking vengeance in your own hands? Are you trying to exact judgment? Are you trying to call the shots? Are you trying to make sure that you're treated fairly? Guess what? That's the victim mentality. How about just take it like Jesus? How about just suffer like Jesus, not to earn his grace, not to earn favor or spot in heaven, but because of his love, because of his sanctification, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Verse 25, for you, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. In other words, When you and I go through suffering seasons, and if this world is any indication, we might just be a few months from that or years. But it's not looking great. 
So far, we, we can still say we live in a free land. We don't know what the future holds. But remember, God institutes every government. He sets up every king and takes him down. We have that. We do have that. Jesus is in control. But when we do suffer, and we can accurately label it as suffering, maybe it is ex-husband and wife. Maybe it is a nasty boss. Maybe you are truly suffering. Jesus says, hey, I'm not just your savior. I'm your shepherd. There's a special comfort. There's a special grace for those who suffer in a Christ-like manner. So be comforted. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, blessed, in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we abundantly share in Christ's sufferings, yes and amen, so through Christ we share abundantly in the comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort. A lot of comfort. He's the God of comfort. So when we suffer successfully, let's look at Jesus, our Savior. Let's look at Jesus, our shepherd. He's the shepherd of the sheep. In other words, he's nearby. In other words, he's in control. He's watching over you. He knows your name. He hears your heart. He's the overseer of your soul. In closing, I want to talk about Peter and then we'll be done. The writer of these words. Just a few years ago, while Jesus was still living on this earth, he thought, Jesus, Jesus, you shouldn't suffer. In fact, not only should Jesus not suffer, but any follower of Jesus should not suffer. When Judas betrayed Jesus in the garden, who was it that chopped the ear off <laughs> with the dagger in his side? Peter. Nobody's going to make Jesus suffer. I'll chop your ear off. And then... When they brought him to the court and the Pharisees, the Jewish magistrates accused him, he was out there by the fire warming his hands and denied him. Said, oh, no, 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 this, this can't be right. This, I don't know him. If, if Jesus is suffering, it's, he cannot be the Messiah. I don't know him. Suffering is not a part of this program. But now, if we look at the Peter of chapter two, he's changed his tune. He's matured a little. He, he understands now that suffering is a part of it. Jesus suffered. I'm going to suffer for being his follower. In fact, do you know how Peter died? Peter was crucified on a cross upside down because he did not think himself worthy to suffer in the same manner as Jesus. We are called to suffer. We've been sanctified to suffer. How are you suffering? We've been called, we've been given the tools, we've been given the bricks to suffer successfully. We've been given the opportunity to shut up stupid people by how we live. How are we going to suffer? How are we going to do it? Three laws for living 
in the land. Spurgeon said this, and I'll close. Which hour do you think of the sufferings of the Lord? From Gethsemane to Golgotha would be most deeply engraved upon the memory of Peter. Surely it would be that space of time in which he was mocked and buffeted in the hall of the high priest, when Peter sat and warmed his hands at the fire, when he saw his Lord abused and was afraid to own that he was his disciple. And by and by became so terrified that with profane language he declared, I do not know the man. So as long as life lingered, that apostle would remember the meek and quiet bearing of his suffering Lord. This commandment, this last brick, this last law has to do with trust and patience. I want to close with the words of 2 Peter 2 when he says about Jesus, he didn't threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. At the end of the day, that's all we can do. Entrust our lives to the Father who we know one day will judge justly. God knows the government situation we live in. God knows who's president. God knows the laws of our land. And he expects us to suffer successfully while we're here. Let's pray. Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you that even then we don't totally understand it and we don't exactly know sometimes where the boundary is, where the line is. And sometimes we, we want to cop this don't tread on me attitude and, and we want to be free and we want to just rebel against any authority, any thing that's trying to contain us and tell us what to do. It's tough. But you say that's how we suffer successfully. It's how we shine brightly is when we lay down our lives, just like you did, we lay down our lives in submission to authority. We put our desires at bay. We put our motives on the back burner and we choose to use our suffering as a public platform, a public display so that you get the glory. And God, we thank you. We pray for our nation. We pray for our government that while we are free to gather and proclaim the name of Jesus and worship in our Christian faith, we are so grateful and happy to do so. We know that it will not last forever. And when that time comes that we're called to suffer, when that time comes and we're called to stand out for our faith against our government, that you would give us the grace and the special comfort as the shepherd and overseer of our soul. God, we entrust you with our lives. We entrust ourselves to the Father who judges justly. God, keep our eyes on the prize. Keep our eyes on the finish line. Keep our eyes on that judgment day when those who have wronged us will face the almighty judge. When those who have bent us out of shape and buffeted us and accused us and maligned us, they'll have to face the judgment seat. Help us to leave vengeance in your hands. Help us to leave judgment in your hands. And God, we pray over this generation 
this generation of, of people right here in this room, when it's so easy, it's so tempting to say, to, to gain attention, to say that we're going through trials or we're going through suffering when it's just the consequences, it's the symptoms of our own sin. It's not the devil, it's the deceitfulness of our own heart. God, convict us of that. Rid us of that. God, we, we shut out, we... We pray against any utopian theology that would like to creep into our hearts where we could just segregate off and, and do our own thing. You've called us to live in this world. God, we pray against any con confession theology in our lives that tries to convince us that suffering is sin. God, we pray against any type of monergistic theology that would say, well, we're saved, we can do what we want, live as we please, when you've called us to live unto righteousness. Ultimately, God, we're thankful for the example of Jesus, the example that we're to follow in his steps, the one who submitted respectfully to the will of the Father, the one who lived freely, the one who suffered successfully. It's in your name that we pray, amen.